Romans chapter 6. I want to lay a little bit of foundation for this. Um, Josephus was a great Jewish general in the army of Judaism. He had a legion of soldiers. He had six centurions under him, a legion of 600 soldiers. And when he heard that the Romans were coming, he already knew the Old Testament Scriptures. And so he met the Romans with his army and surrendered to the Romans because he knew from Daniel that the Romans were going to conquer Jerusalem. And he tried to talk to the people, the Jews, who were up on the walls in Jerusalem. And they tried to shoot him with arrows. Uh, but he tried to talk to them about surrendering and saving their own lives. Because he told them the scriptures clearly indicate that Jerusalem will be destroyed by the Romans. And uh, this was in 78, well, actually about 67 A.D. And... Uh, they were angry at him and called him a traitor. And so Josephus ended up um, becoming under, you know, submitting to the Romans. And he was taken away to Rome. And if you will, when you get home, look up on the Internet, uh, the Arch of Titus. You will see a picture that's still there. In Rome, maybe some of you have tablets you can look it up on now. Here's this magnificent arch that's built over one of the main highways in Rome. And on the face of it is a picture of Jews carrying the seven-pronged candlestick of Moses, carrying the Torah, and there in the foreground and in the background are Roman soldiers standing with whips down at their side. And it's a humiliation to the Jews, but it's a glory to Titus, who was the son of Vespasian, the emperor of Rome, who conquered Jerusalem. It took him three and a half years to finally conquer the citadel, which was the high uh, Acra, is what it was called by the, the Jews, uh, a high fortress inside the city that had been built there by Antiochus Epiphanes uh, not quite 200 years before Jesus was born. And so in 70 A.D., Rome fell. I mean, uh, Jerusalem fell to the Romans. And uh, that's depicted in that arch. Uh, Titus was the general who conquered Rome. And here's an amazing story also connected with that. That when Titus set the temple on fire, the great curtains of the temple were burning, the great... Uh, Cedar beams inside were burning. And he got a runner that came from the Mediterranean Sea, who had originally come from Rome, from his dad, Vespasian, the emperor, and a note that he opened up and it said, please don't burn the temple, I want to see it. Well, it was too late. And the temple burnt. And the gold of the temple melted 
in between all the stones of the temple. And so when it cooled down for the Romans to get the gold out, they had to pry every stone off every other stone. If you've read Jesus' statement in Matthew 24, you know that he said, not one stone here will be left on another of these buildings. Matthew 24, right at the beginning of that chapter. The disciples said, when will this be? And Jesus spends... 30 verses or so answering their question, when will Jerusalem be destroyed? And in Matthew 24, he lists all kinds of signs for the destruction of Jerusalem. But then in verse 36, he says, but of that day or hour, that is the day of the second coming, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor even the Son, but only the Father. So the second coming uh, I don't care what you've heard, Jesus says there's no signs for the second coming. The only sign is the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the kingdom. And you can go to that passage and see it. He says, just like in the days of Noah, when Noah preached righteousness, no one believed it. And he and his seven other family members were saved through the ark. And no one else on earth was saved. Nobody else believed the preaching of Noah. And he said it'll be just like that. The flood came and swept them all away. And in the second coming of Jesus, uh, there will be people swept away and there will be people who will be saved. So that's a fascinating story. I tell you about Josephus for this reason. He was asked by Vespasian, the emperor of Rome, to write a history of the Jews. Because Vespasian was amazed at how rebellious and stiff-necked and obstinate the Jewish people were. And so Josephus writes this two-million-word, massive tome, this great big book. And uh, in the book, he uses the word baptism eight times. And every use of the word means death and destruction. That's what baptism means. He says a sword was baptized within a person. Death and destruction. A ship was baptized. It was sunk. A city was baptized. It was burned with fire and destroyed. All these images of baptism are, are images of death and destruction. Now, I looked at chapter 6 this afternoon, and I counted the times it said dead, dying, death, uh, die, uh, crucified, all of these images of death, 14 times in one chapter. That's what baptism means. It means death. When Jesus is asked, uh, to be for the disciples, remember he said, uh, are you able to be baptism, to, to be baptized with the baptism I must undergo? And they said, yes, we're able. They didn't have any idea he was talking about the cross. Baptism means death and destruction. And our baptism connects us with the death of Jesus on the cross, the burial of Jesus afterwards, and the resurrection of Jesus. And baptism is an amazing teaching in the New Testament Scriptures. Let's just look at the sixth chapter briefly. I want you to just look at the, I'm going to emphasize the word 
the words that have to do with death and destruction. Paul begins in chapter 6. He has just said that all in Adam die and all in Christ live. And then he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? See, one of the amazing things about the teaching of the gospel is when you sin, grace increases. And so a lot of people get the idea, well, I can just do anything and God's going to forgive me. And they get this once in grace, always in grace kind of thinking. And the Bible is almost there. But he asks the question, shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? And then here's his answer. The, the Greek text here says, may genoita, may it never be. Uh, King James says, God forbid. Strongest negative. We died to sin. There's the first use of the word died. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Four uses of the word dead, death, right there. We may live a new life. Baptism means we died. Baptism means we rose from the dead. The book of Revelation says anyone who has undergone the first resurrection has nothing to fear from the second death. What's the second death? The lake of fire. He tells us that in the last part of the book of Revelation. The second death is the lake of fire. You have nothing to fear from the second death if you've gone through the first resurrection. In other words, baptism. Now, this doesn't give us freedom to sin. This is what he's saying. How can we live in sin any longer if we've been baptized? We've died to that. And then he goes on. If we have been united with him, you know, they could have translated this word. The word is uh, planted. If we've been planted with him like this in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. There is a promise. If you've been baptized, you will be united with Jesus in the resurrection. If you've been baptized, you have nothing to fear from the second death. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. That word freed is actually justified, counted not guilty from sin. Isn't it amazing? Baptism, in this context, is death that frees us from sin. Now, it doesn't free us to sin, it frees us from sin. Jesus came to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He came to free us from sin. So we can't keep living in sin. 
Now, if we died with Christ, how many of you have been baptized? See, if you, if you have put your faith in Jesus and been baptized, you have died with Christ. By your faith, you entered, you entered his body on the cross. You were crucified with him. Paul says so right here in verse 6. You were crucified with Christ. You died with Christ. You were taken down from the cross and buried with Christ. You were made alive in that tomb with Christ and raised up with Christ and seated in the heavenly places. See, from God's perspective, the whole thing's already completed. He sees us as glorified beings in heaven. So why do we have to go through all this stuff here? You know, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, a great uh, Danish philosopher and Christian, said that God could reveal himself to us in three ways. He could come to us as God, and we would be so devastated, we would be terrified, and we would live like robots the rest of our lives. So that wouldn't work. The other way is that God could create us and take us to heaven and let us sit beside him. And we would look at ourselves and think, he loves me because I'm so glorious. But he said that wouldn't work, would it? And then he said the only way he could do do it to help us is to become one of us. To live the way we're supposed to live without sin. To die. To be buried and to rise again. And to give hope to people. And so we go through this life so that God will have a basis for judgment. And then at the end of this life, because of our faith in Jesus, because of our hope in Him, we have dealt with our sins for the most part. And we will be taken to heaven. We'll be taken. You know, there are two heavens. There's first paradise. And then at the resurrection, there is heaven. And there we will be, uh, as Micah says, free like calves let out of a stall. If you've ever seen that, free, complete freedom. And everything we do will be pleasing to God. So sin must be done away with. That's what he says here. The body of sin was already done away with in crucifixion by our faith. So we should no longer be slaves of sin. Anyone who has died is freed or justified from sin. So we're not slaves anymore. We're not slaves anymore to sin. We are slaves to obedience, this says. And obedience leads us to righteousness. Okay, look at the next verse, the next paragraph. Now, if we died with Christ, there's that word death again. We believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. You know, everybody else that was raised from the dead, Lazarus, the widow of Nain's son, Dorcas, remember in the book of Acts, all these people that were raised from the dead, they died again. Not Jesus. He's raised on the other side of death, beyond death, beyond suffering. So, He has mastery over death. So look what it says here. Jesus cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Now, what's that mean for us? Well, if we died in baptism, if we were buried in baptism, then death no longer has mastery over us either. 
And this is why we must stop sinning. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. This is the way it should be for us. We should die to sin and be alive to God. And that's the rest of the teaching. That's Paul's teaching and Peter's teaching, John's teaching. All from Jesus. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal, that word is death-bound body. Do not let sin reign. What's supposed to reign? What's supposed to rule in our lives? The grace of Jesus, the power of Jesus. And if the Holy Spirit lives in us, we have the power to overcome sin. We have the power to stop it. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your death-bound body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master anymore. Shall not. That's future. See, sin has been our master. There are times we still sin, but ultimately sin will not be our master anymore because you're not under law but under grace. Grace gives us the power to overcome sin. So shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? There's that word again. Absolutely not. By no means. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you're slaves to the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to righteousness, which leads to life. That's your option. You can either be a slave of sin and end up dying because of it. Or you can be a slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And then he says, thanks be to God, verse 17, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin. And it becomes slaves of righteousness. So we're still slaves. See, we're going to be slaves no matter what. But we have a choice now. We've cho- we've got a different master. We no longer are a, ch- a slave to sin. We're a slave to righteousness. And Paul says, I put this in human terms because it's hard for you to understand. Now, let me talk about this a minute. We've been told here that Baptism means to the Christian that you have died. We have been justified by faith, chapter 5. You see the order of Romans is just perfectly logical. Sin is the first two and a half chapters. And then grace is introduced. And Abraham and David are the examples, chapter 4. And since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God, chapter 5. And then 
what does baptism really mean? It means that we are under the control no longer of sin, but under the control of righteousness. We are slaves either to sin or to righteousness. Which way are you going? Are you going towards sin and Satan, or are you going toward God and righteousness? That's the question. Now, baptism. There are so many passages that come to my mind when I talk about baptism. But let me talk about the three Old Testament images in the New Testament of baptism. The first one's Noah. If you go all the way back in history, the first image of baptism in the Old Testament is Noah. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter was not written by Peter. It was written by Silas. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12 says, Through Silas I have written to you. So Silas is really the author of 1 Peter. And I wish Peter had written it, because 2 Peter is written by Peter, and it's so much simpler and clearer. Uh, 1 Peter is much more difficult Greek. And First Peter is also uh, kind of hard to find in my Bible here. First uh, Peter chapter 3 is what we're going to look at. The only way I can do it is by licking my fingers. In the context here, he's talking about Noah and the building of the ark. And in First Peter chapter 3... Starting in verse 18, in the middle of the verse, uh, he says, well, let's just start with verse 18, 1 Peter 3:18. For, for Christ died for sins once for all, Paul just said that, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the, in the body, but made alive in the spirit, through whom he went also and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, there's a tremendous amount in there. The spirit of Jesus went into Noah and preached to the people back then before the flood. There's a, there's a Greek word that every time Peter uses it, the word is pote in Greek, and it means back then, back in the Old Testament times. And so he's saying that the same spirit that was in Jesus that allowed him to live without sin was also in Noah that caused Noah to walk with God, and Noah was a preacher of righteousness. You can read that in Second Peter, the first couple chapters. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so the Spirit of Christ was in Noah preaching to those people back then who disobeyed long ago while God was waiting patiently for the hundred years to pass that it took Noah and his sons to build that ark. Now, a lot of people think an ark is a boat, but it isn't. It's a box, a three-story box 
The Ark of the Covenant was like a casket. The word is, the, the word Ark actually means a casket or a box. And so the Ark of Noah, I mean, you can study it. It's a fascinating study. 167 boxcar loads could fit in that thing. Uh, magnificent, huge piece of work in the days before power tools. Under God's direction, the exact size. And every animal that God wanted in that ark came in groups of either two pairs or seven pairs. And much of the ark was used for food for the people and for the animals. But 167 boxcars, you could put a lot of food and a lot of animals in that. Uh, you know, that's a huge amount. And that's the smallest possible measurement for the ark, by the way. One and a half football fields long and half a football field wide, 75 feet wide, three stories tall. Somebody said, were there dinosaurs in the ark? Well, they might have taken them in as eggs or they might have taken them in as babies. But I believe all the animals came. And Noah had never had to go, you know, Bill Cosby says, what do you say to a mosquito, male or female? You know, you, he, Bill Cosby is joking about it, but Noah never had to go out and get the animals. The animals were brought by God into the ark. And then God shut the door, and God put pitch on the outside of the door. And Noah put pitch on the inside of the door. Now, that ark is still up there on Ararat. It's been broken in half. There was an earthquake up there, and the Ahura Gorge was formed, which is deeper than the Grand Canyon. And that ark slid, half of it slid down the mountain about a 1,000 feet. And John Warwick Montgomery, who I got to take to breakfast every morning while he was lecturing in our seminary, had pieces of the ark with him. They're heavy like rock. They're pitch-permeated board. And the boards were already heavy because they were cypress. That's what gopher. I always thought it meant he, he had to go for wood, but that's not what it meant. It, it's called gopher wood or cypress wood. And it's a very strong, sturdy wood. And he had pieces, I had pictures of the inside of the ark. He went up into, in Turkey with government. First he went up against government permission, but the second time he went up with government permission. First time he was jailed and appealed to the American embassy and finally got out, and they wouldn't give him any of his stuff. So he got permission from the higher-ups then in Turkey and went up, took pictures, went inside the ark. There were people up there looking on top of the ark. Part of the ark had broken off and fallen down into this uh, deep declivity. It's very hard to find a good time, but he went up after a drought at the end of August because the mountain is 16,000 feet high where the ark rests. And it's usually covered with a huge glacier. My brother uh, was one of two government advisors over the manned uh, space project. Uh, he worked for the Aerospace Corporation. He had 600 people under him. Uh, he he was very high up in the government circles. First, he was involved in the lunar landing module and the uh, a whole bunch of other things. But he went. He happened to be in the Pentagon one time with a friend, and the guy was showing him around. And he showed him a file cabinet, and on the front it said Noah's Ark. And my brother said, "Is that 
are there pictures of the ark in there? He said, yeah, we got pictures from satellite from space. We got pictures from airplanes. We got pictures from people who've gone up there. They don't know how many people have been up there. I met a guy in Farmer's Branch in Dallas, Texas, uh, who had been up there. Uh, he and his son. Uh, it, you just have to pick the right time. It has to be after a, a drought. It has to be late in the summer. And if you're lucky, you get to see it. And you can see it for hundreds and hundreds of feet before you get to it because it's huge. So it's real. It's still there. If we could just get the government's permission, we could go up and see it. But it takes some doing to get 16,000 feet up. Well, as the ark was being prepared, Noah and his sons worked 100 years. You know, Bill Cosby says it's a heck of a job for a 500-year-old man. Well, God called him when he was 500. That was the same year that he had his three sons. They were triplets, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The scripture tells us that. Uh, the first one born was Japheth. Most of the folks in this room are from Japheth. Um, most of us are uh, European. And uh, Japheth's family, after the flood, settled in Europe. Uh, there may be some here. I know that there's at least one who is probably out of Shem. Shem was the second son, but he was the one God chose. And the uh, Arab and Jewish nations came out of Shem. Abraham came out of Shem. Uh, and then Ham, now listen to this. The word ham means burnt or dark. And Ham and his family settled in Africa. So there were three sons. One of them was darker than the others. Isn't it interesting? His name is Ham in Hebrew, which means burnt. Um, they're, they're brothers. That means the whole human race. We're all brothers and sisters. There's no escaping that. We all are connected through Noah and his family. Uh, wonderful story. The ark is prepared over a hundred years, and God waits patiently for Noah to get that job done. I always wondered, why didn't God make the ark and just tell Noah to move in? Well, there's something about work that brings reward. And so they worked. And notice what it says here. The ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in number, were saved through water. And the water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge or an answer of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So how is the ark and the flood like baptism? What kind of a world did God destroy in the flood? Chapter 6 in Genesis said, Every thought of their heart was only evil all the time. That's all it was. And only Noah and his family walked with God. So you've got... A, a, a whole world full of 
enemies who are destroyed in the flood. And they come down and are landing on Mount Ararat. Hebrew meaning of the word Ararat means a curse on the serpent. Isn't that interesting? And they land on that mountain. How long were they in the ark? A year and a week. You know, we read the story, Noah kept a ship's log. You can go back and look at it. We think 40 days and 40 nights. Well, that's how long it rained, and that's when the continent sank, the supercontinent, the ancient world. It says the fountains of the great deep opened up. When the continent sank, hydrologists tell us that water was shot 22 miles up through the atmosphere, which would just destroy the cloud canopy. And then all that would break down and collapse and fall on the earth over 40 days. And so you've got the fountains of the great deep, the sinking of the continent, and breaking up of the continent. And what we have now in this in this world is a series of seven or eight huge plates. Anybody study plate tectonics? That's what causes earthquakes. That's what causes volcanoes. Uh, the inside of this plant, planet is molten iron. I don't know how many thousands of degrees, but supposedly hotter than the surface of the sun. That's down below. The top part is a thin mantle that stretches over that heat. And when you think about that, if the continent sank, water, there's enough water on the surface of the world. If the entire world were perfectly round, everything would be covered with a mile and a half of water. That's a massive amount of water. So to think of a worldwide flood is not some myth. This is something that actually happened. I was in the mountains. I was telling somebody this the other day. My wife and I went up to Silverton, Colorado, and I went up to the very top of that bald mountain there, Silverton Mountain. And I was looking around at the ground, and I found a couple of sea creature fossils up there. The tops of the mountains were all under water. And here are sea creatures. And I went down and talked to some guy about it, and he said, hey, I've got some, I'll sell you. And he had a bunch that he had polished up and shined up, and I bought two or three of them. But I found a cockle shell about that big around and several other sea creatures right on the top of the mountain. Well, this is a true story. Noah and the flood is a true story. The only animals that existed in the world came out of the ark. The only humans that existed in the world came out of the ark. The ark was the place of safety, and the flood was the place that destroyed all the enemies. And the only evil left on planet earth was in those eight people that came out of that ark. And you probably know the rest of the story, but it's just, it's incredible. How does that connect to baptism? When you're baptized, the enemy is destroyed. The evil is destroyed. The only evil remaining is in what's what's inside you. That's one of the main teachings here. We're saved through water. Have you ever stopped to think that every creation of God has been through water? Have you read Genesis? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formlessness and emptiness and darkness over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God brooding over the waters. And God said, I read uh, 
Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time. You know who Stephen Hawking is? He sits in Einstein's chair at MIT, uh, one of the top eight mathematical geniuses in the world. It takes him three hours to get ready to go anywhere because he's got MS so bad and he's in a wheelchair. He speaks through a computer. Brilliant. His book, A Brief History of Time, he talks about quantum physics, and some of it's very complicated, but most of it's pretty understandable. But what he says is, if the entire universe were shrunk down to absolute zero, that's 457 point something below zero Fahrenheit, if everything was cooled down that much, all matter would cease to exist, except the universe would be filled with water. I thought, man, that's what the Bible says. The Spirit's brooding over the waters in the dark. And then God speaks. The water's already there. And God brings the universe out of the water. Listen to what Peter says. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 5. God created the universe out of water and by means of water. Water is God's creative element. How did He create Israel as a nation? He took them through the Red Sea out of Egypt. Through the water. We're going to talk about that in a little while. How does he create a Christian? He takes us through the water. How is a baby born? Everything new that God does is through water. Woman's water breaks and the child comes through that water. Amazing. Everything he creates is through water. So baptism is a part of the creative process of God. The second Old Testament teaching. Noah's first, then Abraham. Colossians 2. Can you find Colossians? A little bit after Ephesians and Philippians. This book is a difficult Bible to, to turn the pages on. Chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 11 and 12. Abraham teaches us about baptism, and here it is. 2, verse 11 and 12. In him, that is in Christ, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the flesh, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. Circumcision connects with baptism. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, automatically relegating women to a second-class position. But baptism is a sign of the covenant in the New Testament, automatically making men and women equal. Baptism is the circumcision done to the heart by Christ. I, I hate it that NIV sticks in the word sinful nature because the, the play on words here is between spirit and flesh. And when you use sinful nature, it takes away the, the image of the flesh. In him you were circumcised in the putting off of the flesh, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men but with the circumcision done by Christ in baptism. 
So this is what the uh, pedo-baptists, the people who baptize children, uh, this is a scripture that they refer to. They connect circumcision and baptism. They want baptism to be early. But they have a doctrine that if a child dies and is not baptized, that he goes to hell. But that is against the scripture. You know, Jesus said the little children, you've got to become like a little child in the kingdom of heaven. Innocence and right behavior and goodness like a little child to enter the kingdom. Children are safe with or without baptism. In the Bible, the people who are baptized are those who are believers. How can a child like that believe? Again, I, I will not condemn our brothers and sisters who believe that, who do that, who practice that. I believe they're mistaken, but you can't condemn somebody who believes in Jesus and tries to follow him, and many people just haven't been taught. So what does Abraham teach us? That baptism is the circumcision Christ does to the heart. Baptism is where God operates on you and does open heart surgery. And our hearts are permanently open because of that. And then Moses, the third teacher from the Old Testament, turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I alluded to this earlier. Paul says so many times to the Corinthians, they were so arrogant, they think they, they knew everything. And Paul keeps telling them, I wish you weren't so ignorant. And he does the same thing here. Verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea, that they all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were baptized into Moses. They were under the cloud and they passed through the sea. The cloud is a symbol for the Spirit of God. And the sea is a symbol for the water. And so you've got water and spirit. People are baptized here to become the nation of Israel. And they're baptized into Moses. And that's why I think Peter says to the Jews in Acts 2.38, be baptized and you will receive the Spirit. The Spirit is yet future for people who are not baptized, if they're Jewish. But when you go over to Acts chapter 10, verse 46, where Peter's preaching, and he says, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name, and the Spirit comes down on the Gentiles right there and then. And then Peter says, who can withhold water for baptism from these people? They've received the Spirit just as we did. So the Jews get the Spirit after baptism, because they have to be baptized out of Moses into Christ. And the Gentiles receive the Spirit any time. I see the Holy Spirit works without any kind of a pattern, because He's a person. And He works with persons individually and personally. And in this case, the Holy Spirit comes before water baptism. Jesus gives us the example 
Jesus is baptized and the heavens open and the Spirit comes down on him. The Spirit is always connected with the water. Jesus tells Nicodemus, who came to him at night, you must, be you must be born of the water and of the Spirit. And the next verse says, flesh produces flesh, and Spirit produces Spirit. So don't be amazed, I say, you must be born from above. But Nicodemus hears the word anothen there, and he thinks he's saying, be born again. And so he says, obviously I can't enter my mother's womb again. What do you mean be born again? And Jesus corrects him and says, it's not born again, it's born from above. That word's used 18 times in the New Testament. And the only two times it's translated again is in John 3. All the rest of the times it's translated from above. You must be born from above. Flesh produces flesh. It's a flesh birth. But spirit produces a spiritual birth. You must be born from above. And so water and spirit are always connected. From Genesis 1 verse 2 all the way to the end of Revelation where the water flows out of the throne of God. Symbol of the Holy Spirit. So here you have three alls. Remember I told you only God can say all. Jesus takes away all our sins, God says. And here he says, all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then he says, they all ate the same supernatural food and drank the same supernatural drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Isn't that a fascinating way to teach? Here's the rock. At the beginning of the wanderings in the desert, Moses strikes the rock with the rod. God tells him to. And the water gushes out for the people of Israel because they're, they're thirsty. At the end of the wilderness wanderings, God says, go out to the rock at Horeb and speak to it. But in anger... Moses goes out and says, you rebels, must we bring water? You know, like he's going to do it. Must we bring water out of this rock for you? And he struck it with his rod. Nothing happened. He struck it again, and God honored that and went ahead. And, but he said, that's the last straw. You're not going to enter the promised land because you took glory away from me. Three things Moses did. Killed an Egyptian, buried him in the sand. Broke both tablets of the Ten Commandments. Probably the only guy in history ever broke the Ten Commandments all at once. And <laughs> this reminds me of my friend uh, Ron Heine. I was teaching next to him one time, and I said we were trying to think of who, think of who, what the seven deadly sins are. And I finally asked him, and you know he's a great scholar. And I said, what are the seven deadly sins? And he said. I don't know, but I've probably done them all. <laughs> well, notice this. Supernatural food and supernatural drink. What was the supernatural food? Manna. Isn't that That's a wonderful word. The Hebrew word manhu means what is it? Let's go get some what is it. You know, and that became the name of it. What is it is the name manna. And so they, little coriander seed size, little pieces of 
bread that tasted like uh, loaves made with honey, it says. But after 20 or 30 years of it, people were complaining so much, and I'm getting tired of this banana bread and manicotti and, you know, all the, the stuff you make from manna. <laughs> Uh, and so God gives them quail, supernatural food, quail three feet deep as far as the eye can see around the camp. You know, if you've got two million people, how much food is it going to take to provide for that? And some of them ate it without cooking it. They were so filled with lust. And the scripture says 24,000 died in a single day. And Paul goes on and describes, there's five advantages they had. They were under the cloud. They passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses, meaning they were unified with their leader. Under the cloud means they were guided and delivered. Passed through the sea means they were saved and delivered. And baptized into Moses means they were unified with Moses. And then they got the supernatural food and the supernatural drink. Don't we have the same thing? Aren't we also under the guidance of the Spirit? Haven't we also passed through the water? Aren't we also baptized into Christ, unified with Him? Don't we also have supernatural food and drink? This is my body. This is my blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus. And then five advantages, and then he lists five failures in the next few verses. Five failures of the Jews. Five sins they committed. And then he says at the end of this, don't be like them. Don't sin. All right. Now, I've got a bunch more scriptures. I think about baptism and just scripture just rushes into my head. Acts 2.38, be baptized, receive the Spirit. Acts 10.46, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins, and the Spirit fell as He was saying it. 1 Corinthians 6.11, you've been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified by the Spirit of our God. Titus 3.5, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is like a gigantic Mississippi River that's pure white, and we stand in that river, and it flows through us and purifies us. I read a thing today in the book uh, Harbinger. How can a river be inside a clay vessel? We are the clay vessel, and the river of the Spirit flows through us. Jesus says, welling up into eternal life. You know, it's a living water. I'm done. There's a whole bunch more. I mean, Hebrews 10:22, we draw near to God, our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Baptism. 
some powerful teaching in the scripture on baptism. Any question on this? What do you think? Do you have to be baptized to be saved? Do you think baptism has an important part in being saved? And you can't deny it. I know that there are those who want to relegate baptism to something you do after you've been saved. And that may be true some of the time. But for the Jews, Peter makes it clear, be baptized, you will receive the Spirit. Yes? Yeah. It's kind of like circumcision. You know, a little kid doesn't understand circumcision either. That's right. Yeah, my daughter was seven uh, when she believed in Jesus. And she told me one night, I want to be baptized. And I said, honey, I think you're too young. And she cried. And she said, Daddy, I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell if I don't get baptized. And I got on the phone and called Denny Slaughter, who was a minister of our church at that time. And I said, Denny, what do you think? You think seven's too young? And he said, Mark, if she's old enough to love and obey you, she's old enough to love and obey Jesus. And so the next Sunday... She was all excited, marched down the aisle, you know. I tried to keep up with her, and when I got up front, she was so little. I finally lifted her up and put her on the on the seat so everybody could see her. And I said, Dan, or, uh, back then her name was Danielle. I said, Danielle, why did you come up here? She said, because I want to be baptized. And I said, why? She said, because I want Jesus to come and live in my heart. And I thought, what can I say against that? And my son wasn't baptized till he was 15. He came and beat on my door at a, at a Christ in Youth conference one time at 11 o'clock at night. I'd just gone to bed, beating on the door. And I got up and went to the door. And I, he said, Dad, I want you to baptize me. I said, how come? He said, because I want my sins washed away. And I, I made a commitment not to have sex until I'm married. And I said, Okay. So we walked across the campus to the pool, and there were about a hundred people standing around there. And I just asked him to tell tell us why he wanted to be baptized. And he confessed with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, and said, "I believe in my heart that He was raised from the dead." I baptized him, and when I married him and his wife, they were both virgins, and that was an incredible thing in this culture in this day. He had made a list of things he wanted in a wife. Beautiful, virgin, big boobs. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm just telling you what he, he made a list. And, and he got a beautiful girl that fulfilled, he made a list of about 15 things. She fulfilled all of it. And so far they got three sons and they've got a little girl on the way now. So she's going to have some bodyguards. Uh, yes, ma'am. These two examples, 
stronger that, you know, we present the word to them, but God works on that part. That's right. So it's finally, it's God's work with them to get them ready, don't you think? That's right. Yeah. yeah, it takes different kids at different times. Just ask them why. Why do you want to be baptized? But every single answer they give is worthwhile from the I want Jesus to live in my heart and I don't want to go to hell. To yeah. It's what Jesus did. Why shouldn't I do it? Yeah, no, there's a great example. I had a 12 year old tell me that. At that point, to me, that's take them to the water and continue to teach Yeah, I would have no problem baptizing those kids. Even if they're five. If they want Jesus. You were five? No kidding. Well, it didn't do you any good, though, did it? <laughs> Just kidding you. Uh, I'm very glad. I think that's really cool to know that you were five years old when you were baptized. I think kids can believe, and there's a sense. You know, I gave you this, this title of a book, uh, The Spirit of the Rainforest. I want to recommend that to all of you. Spirit of the Rainforest. I can't tell you the author's name. He's a journalist, but he's dealing with witch doctors, and the witch doctors all had demons, and they're in South America. It's an incredible story. He ends up bringing one of the witch doctors up here to the United States, and he interviews him and interviews him and interviews him, and he hears all this stuff, and the story is just the witch doctors all knew each other. They'd never met but they knew each other through their demons. And when they would meet, one of them would say, oh, it's you. I know you. You know, And, and they knew each other because of their demons. Uh, it's one of the most fascinating things I've ever read. But their, their tribe lost a lot of babies. A lot of babies died, and they wanted to know what happened to those babies. And the demons tell the witch doctors what happened. And I'll let you read the book, Spirit of the Rainforest. It'll, it'll change and open up some things in your thinking. God works where we can't. Uh, I, my wife and I have prayed for 30 years that God would send Muslim leaders and Boko Haram and Al-Qaeda and all these different terrorists, uh, Hezbollah, uh, Hamas, that God would send them dreams and visions. I can't go there and talk to them, but God can. And I just read, after 30 years of praying, we had a guy, a Muslim, come to our school and speak, and he had had a vision of falling into a lake of fire night after night. It was driving him crazy. He finally looked for a Christian minister to ask what that means. And the guy told him, and then he told him the gospel. And the, he believed, and he ended up, he's preaching all over the world now. Uh, there were... Uh, Many others. There were two leaders of Boko Haram, the, the, the group, you remember, that, that took all those girls over in Nigeria. Uh, now there are, uh, they've, re they've released 877 of the girls that they took, but there's still thousands that, that have been taken. But the two of the leaders became believers in Jesus and followers of Jesus because of visions and dreams. The visions drive them crazy. They see things. They see a man on a cross, for example, and they, they go looking for somebody to tell them what that means. 
And uh, I think that if all the church across the world would pray, we could convert the world through God's work. I can't go speak Arabic with somebody or, or Farsi or, you know, but God can. Uh, pray for that. Pray for those who are the enemies of God, that God would reveal himself to them, that they can't miss the visions and dreams that God will give them. And I believe God will change the world. You know, we're talking here about, I mean, we've already talked about persecution and the, the rapid, explosive growth of the church in the world. Uh, the church must outgrow persecution. That's the only hope. In this country, the church is diminishing 1% to 2% per year. We're losing the next generation. And I think part of the reason is most churches refuse to change. Somebody said, how many Christian church elders does it take to change a light bulb? Change? You know. Uh, <laughs> any other questions or comments? Hmm? I think where the youth do go to church, it's more entertainment-oriented than real teaching. That's true. I, I pray that God will send His Spirit and bring revival to this country. We are in desperate need. We need to get some people in Washington who will at least tell the truth. You know, my, I've got a Ben Carson sticker on my car. He's He's my choice. I would take Ben Carson or Ted Cruz. Uh, you know, I don't know. They're they're probably too conservative to make it. But uh, good people. Ted Cruz sounds like a Church of Christ preacher. He's powerful. But uh, Ben Carson, I don't know if you know who he was, but born into grinding poverty. His mom worked two jobs to raise him and his brothers and sister. Uh, he was in... Uh, the worst area of Detroit, and he became the head of surgery at Johns Hopkins University Hospital. Brilliant, incredible person. And, excuse me? Neurosurgeon. Yeah, neurosurgeon, correct. Amazing person. He's the first guy ever to separate two live babies who were connected at the head. And since then, he's done... 30 or 40 operations like that and save both babies. He's an amazing man. And I think America needs a doctor. That's my personal opinion. I don't think we need a queen. I think we need a doctor. That's my opinion, okay? Not telling you how to vote, but please don't vote for Hillary. <laughs> <coughs> Yeah, I know. It's really true. Kings and queens. The elite. Well, when you're right all the time, it's kind of hard not to, you know, push your... I pray. I pray for our leaders every day. Pray for Obama. Pray that God will break through to these guys and teach them uh, humility and wisdom. Thank you all.
I appreciate uh, appreciate your attendance. I know there's a lot of things to do on a rainy night. It's good to have you here. Uh, tomorrow is our last night, and I want to do uh, a couple things. I want to deal very quickly with chapter 7 and 8, and then I want to go to the practical part. It starts with uh, Romans 12, and look at the first couple verses there. Okay.